Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. So um, this week, I open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, this week, I, um, I had two different e- uh, conversations or, or, or two different events that the Lord impressed upon me that um, this was the passage I needed to teach on. And I, and I kind of was, was, was a little bit hesitant because I said, Lord, you know, I've, I've mentioned this passage like almost every Sunday the last couple of weeks. It's almost like you said, so you can't mention it again? And I guess my thought is, it's so familiar to most of us that what else is there? But I think that, for the most part, we look at this passage in the wrong way. Not maybe in the wrong way, but in an incomplete way. This passage says, in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What I think that we have gotten wrong about this passage is not so much the intent of what God is calling for, because clearly he's saying that what is lacking is not a harvest. What is lacking is the labors for the harvest. I think what we've misunderstood is how the harvest actually happens. Because we equate harvest with the end product, with the fruit off the tree that's ready to eat, or with the grain that's ready to be pulled and eaten. And so we imagine this field of, of, of grain. When we look at this passage, we imagine, in, at least I, I always have, and I'm, I'm thinking you'd probably did too, we're looking at this field and God is saying, go into the field and, and there's a harvest just waiting to be harvested. And so we view our job as we go into the field and we share the gospel and we bring the harvest in. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because the harvest can't be ready until a whole lot of other stuff is done so that there can be a harvest. And I'm afraid that too often in our minds we have this idea that the one who brings the salvation is the real hero of the story. That when you, when you pray with someone and they receive Christ, it's like, yes, I've done my job. But the truth is, You don't see someone coming to faith in Jesus because you are a fantastic gospel sharer. And you certainly don't get that because you were just bold. You certainly don't get that because you had the right right answers to their card questions. You actually had a very small part of it. I had a very small part of it in that I'm simply a tool that God is using because it is only God who can do conversion in somebody's life. Only Jesus can redeem somebody. Only Jesus can bring conviction of sin and repentance. That is a gift from God, not from you, not from me. But not only the person who is there at the moment of the harvest, but it's every other person along the way who did their part so that there could be a harvest. In terms of actually looking at this passage from an agricultural perspective, You start with a piece of ground that is rocky. 
If you've ever been to Israel, it is a rocky place. It is a place where water is just not everywhere. You actually have to get water to the fields. I mean, on one whole side of Israel is the Dead Sea. You know why it's called the Dead Sea? Because it's dead. There's nothing alive in that sea, except for me when I was floating across it one day with Kenny Craig. Shout out to Kenny Craig. Um, did I told you that story, didn't I? I'll tell you that another time. So, so you, don't have, you, you can't use that water and just pump it onto the fields. You've got to dig wells and you've got to irrigate and you've got to figure out ways to get the water there. But you've got to take this rocky ground and you've got to pull the rocks out. And you've got to kill the weeds. And you've got to till it. Now, nowadays, we get on the tractor and we just let the tractor, you know tractors now are computer generate, they're computer run, right? Like, you don't have to know how to run a tractor, basically to run a tractor. You just know how to push buttons. You sit down, you pull up your iPhone, play on Facebook and go, plow this field. It's, it, it literally is self-driving. Maybe not that simple, but it's, it's pretty simple. Back in the day, they would have have. These, these hand tools, and if they had an ox, they would, they would take and hook up some sort of a tool behind it. But it was heart-pounding, uh, 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 mind-breaking work. You say, how hard could it be? What kind of mind-breaking work is it? Have you ever looked at a field that was gigantic and knew that you had every single square inch of that to break up? You don't get to plant until you plow you don't get to plow until you prepare and you don't get to prepare until you actually go and are able to to survey it and know what to do and so it could be months before you can put anything in that ground but once the ground is ready you then have to put the seed in the ground now again now we're all automatic uh, and they they have the I think they're called call peckers or call packers or something like that and they and they put the seeds in exactly at the right way that they're supposed to go but it used to be that they would have to har- throw the seed out and they would have to be sure that they did it in a equal way cuz seed was not cheap and seed was was pretty pretty priceless right then after the seed was there they would have to tend to the field and it could be months maybe even years before a field was ready to harvest and every day they go out and they're just doing a little bit here and a little bit there. And then when they go out one day, they say the harvest is ready. Then they go through and they harvest the field. See, as, as followers of Jesus, we have to get it out of our mind that the hero of the story is the one who picks the fruit. Because that's not the hero of the story. In fact, I'll show you in a minute, but the one who picks the fruit only gets the same amount of credit as the one who breaks the field. The one who breaks the field gets an equal amount of credit from God as the one who plants the seed. The one who weeds the, 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 the weeds gets the same amount of credit. When I say credit, I'm talking about God recognizing what's actually going into this process. When Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, I think underneath that teaching of of, of simply us praying to, for, for, to, and being sent, I think underneath that is a recognition that the harvest is time-consuming and it's costly and it's painful. And it's not about one person. It's about everybody doing their own part. I remember when I was uh, uh, in seminary, my first mission trip was to Ecuador. We flew into Quito, and then from there we went to some place. I have no idea where it was. I, could, I couldn't even point it on the map. It was so long ago. 
I do remember that we flew, flew Loxa. This was when smoking was still allowed on a flight. Guess what? If you get onto a flight that is a South American flight that allows smoking, you're going to be sucking cigarette smoke the whole trip. This thing, I'm not joking, took off and landed about nine times before we ever got to Quito because it stopped in every single little place. Tegucigalpa was one of them. You ever been there? Tegucigalpa, this is so sidetracked, but let me just tell you, if you ever get a chance to go, you should do it just for the ride. A lot of planes crash at this particular airport. Because, yeah, it's a, so because basically they have to fly around a mountain range and through a mountain range. And then the landing strip is on top of a mountain and it's very short. So I remember I was in that window seat. I was looking out the window and I remember going, man, those trees are awfully close. Like they were right under the landing gear. As soon as we cleared those trees, we went boom. They must have been Navy pilots. Come in hard and stop fast, right? But that's the truth. And, and, and it was afterwards I discovered that that was a very, you could actually go on YouTube and see it. It's crazy. We took off and landed so many times. We finally got to this place. We were ready to do ministry. And I had packed a few um, uh, attention grabbers in preparation of sharing the gospel. See, when I was in college and then in seminary, I, I actually started doing magic tricks. And I would do birthday parties, you know, pull bunnies out of the hat. I have a cousin who still won't talk to me because I pulled a bunny out of the hat and gave him the bunny, and I guess they didn't like that. Um, I've actually had some personal experiences with bunnies uh, that didn't go so great either. Um, and so these magic tricks, though, I put them in my suitcase and I brought them because the goal was to use those as illustrations for sharing the gospel because our plan was to stand on the street corners and share the gospel. Translator would simply say what we said. Well, when the trip director found out that I had trucos, trucos is what they called them, which is tricks. He said, ah, perfect. You're going to do magic tricks every time we're going to preach. And you're going you're to draw the crowd. And then we're going to let the preachers preach. Run that by me again. And I, I, I don't know if you can fully grasp the, the, or fully appreciate the, the, the feeling that I had in this moment because what I heard was, you're going you're gonna to do the busy work and they're going to get the preaching. So you get the boring stuff and they get the fun stuff. Because remember, a preacher only wants to what? Preach. And so I stood on corner after corner after corner, doing my little magic tricks, pulling things out of people's ears. And then just when a crowd would be big enough, I'd move over and I'd stand there and I'd listen to one of the other seminary preachers preach. And I got madder and madder and madder. I was mad because I wanted to be the one preaching. Why did I have to bring these stupid tricks? Trucos. And what I didn't realize is that was a pivotal point in my life. What God was doing was telling, was, was trying to tell me that my ego was bigger than it needed to be. Because what it did was it got down to the root of my core problem. I wanted to be the preacher because I wanted to be the one that was able to say, look at how many people came to Christ. Look how powerful the message was. Oh, God sure moved, didn't he? And so... Corner after corner after corner, I was just doing trucos. You know, I wish I could say I learned it at that moment and I was all good from then on. 
But it has taken years and years and years of wrestling to realize that no preacher is good enough to bring a harvest. No preacher is compelling enough for people to be saved. It is only and entirely the work of God in their life. Furthermore, the one who does the trucos has every bit of honor as the one who does the harvest preaching. And the thing that I think God used that to show me was how to begin to appreciate the local church. Because the truth is, on a Sunday morning, there are a few jobs that are seen. You got the music leader, the worship leader, you got the, 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 the other worship leaders and musicians, and you got the preacher, and you got the announcement guy, and you know, I mean, the sound guy and the lighting guy, the video guy, those, but, but everybody else is just there, and they're like, well, am I just, okay, cool. But see, nothing actually could be farther from the church, uh, from the truth. The true strength of us as a people of God is not the stage, it's the pew or the seat. The true strength of a local church are not the guys that are talking on Sunday, it's the guys and the ladies and the kids and the, and the students who are in the fields every single day where God has strategically and intentionally placed them. One particular girl over here, I say girl, she's in her 30s, her name is Rayanne. I learned something about her this past week that just blew my mind. She is a tattoo artist for Jesus. But it's not tattoos like you'd think. See, the kind of tattoo she does is, uh, I don't know what the actual name of, there's an official name, but it's, this, it's basically reconstructing the parts of the body that have been disfigured or, or lost because of chemo, because some sort of medical condition. So she, she helps people basically to have dignity again. Somebody going through chemo and loses all their hair or big chunks of her hair, she can actually go in with her, with her stuff and she can draw hair to where from a distance, you know, from here to here, you couldn't tell that it's not there. Eyebrows, lips, things like that. And when I asked her about it, she said, you know, it's such a great opportunity to tell people about Jesus because while they're in my chair and while I'm doing this work on their face or on their body, they open their soul to me. And I'm able to basically share anything that God leads me to share. And I, I, inside, I was like jumping up and down. I mean, I was so excited because this is a girl who gets it. She understands that her job is simply a means to an end. The end is testifying that Jesus Christ really is Jesus, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. See, whatever giftedness God has given you, He's given it to you because you are a part of a grand plan of God. And it's bigger. Listen, catch this. It's not just that you're a part of God's grand plan here and now. It's you're a part of His plan forever. Like what you do today makes a difference a hundred years from now. You want to talk about significance, that's significance. But see, we're trained somehow or some way to believe that what we do, if it's not leading someone to pray to receive Jesus and we can present them before the church to be baptized, well, we're just not, we're just not that good. We just haven't done enough. 
Now, let me step over here for a minute. This is not an excuse to do nothing, because here's the deal. I I was talking with one of our folks at First Baptist today, and and he was saying, you know, I just can't, I can't do what I used to do. I want to, but my circumstances just don't allow it. And I said, hey, you need to understand something. I am not the judge of your faithfulness to Christ. I'm not the judge of whether or not you are working the way God has called you to work. That's between you and Him. Now, as, as your shepherd, as a pastor, I am going to help prod and help move you along, and I am going to ask questions, and I am going to try to challenge you, but at the end of the day, you don't have to prove anything to me. You, you, don't, have to, you don't have to give me excuses of why you're doing something or why you're not. That's between you and God because the Bible says that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What is he going to judge? He's going to say, what have you done with the life I've given you? And if we stand before him and say, well, you know, I I kept that that seat really warm every Sunday. He's going to say, you know what? You can come in. But you've got nothing but entrance. And then there are going to be some who you've never heard their name. You don't even know they exist because they're nobodies in nowhere land. And and if I can only imagine this reception, it's almost like God would go, shh, here he comes. Or here she comes. And this, this feeble woman will be walking up and be like, welcome. Nobody knows you. Nobody saw you. But you changed the world. Come on in. Let me show you the place I've prepared for you as a reward for your service. Now, I know that was kind of using a little bit of liberty there, but just imagine that. The things that we celebrate are the things that are seen, which means that the things that we attribute as, as, as valuable to God are not always a full picture of what is valuable to God. There was a man by the name of um, William Carey. You know who William Carey is? It's a college in Mississippi called William Carey College. It's in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. William Carey in the late 1700s uh, was a young pastor. He was married, had a few kids. He believed that God's call to the church, to the people of God, was missions. And he believed that it was the church's responsibility to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. It wasn't just the first 12 disciples. It was to every believer that lived. And so William Carey preached a message, and the title of the message was, Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. And he was very quickly shot down by the older pastors in the room and within a year he had decided that he was going to practice what he preached. He and another guy by the name of Thompson they left on a ship for India. Now this is the late 1700s. I was doing a little bit of the math which means that in order to do missions um, in those days you had to pack everything you owned into a case. Everything. Because you didn't expect to return. You would maybe hope to return but you wouldn't have, have, have you had that guarantee. And you would get on a cargo ship and you would set sail. And it would be three or four months before you got to the land that you were going. Talk about commitment. Today, 
You and I could literally go on a mission trip tomorrow if we wanted to. We could call this afternoon, make a plane arrangement. Tomorrow we could go to Pensacola Airport. We could jump on a plane and we could be in Ecuador. We could be anywhere in the world doing missions. Back in those days, when you signed up, you signed up for good. So him and this partner, they brought their families to India with the express purpose of of planting the gospel in this continent of India. And when they got there, they suddenly and quickly realized that they didn't have enough money. They vastly underestimated how much it would cost to live and work there. So they both got side jobs and they kind of etched out a living, just barely making by. They had a few more kids and in the process of just trying to live, they encountered struggle after struggle after struggle. Every place they went, they found resistance. They found that they didn't have enough. And they were wondering, no doubt to themselves, is it possible that maybe those old guys back there were right? But you know, I think that William Carey was in that same place that you and I often get into where we're struggling between what our head says and what we know God has said. Because if you look at his writings, what you will see is that he constantly was coming back to the calling that God had placed on his, mind, on his life. In the first seven years of his work there, after seven years, there was a grand total of one salvation. In that seven years, his friend who came to do ministry with him packed up and went home. In those seven years, he buried his five-year-old son. And in those seven years, his wife went insane. And she had to be locked in a room and sometimes tied to a bed simply for her own safety. And after seven years, one soul for Jesus. What if he would have measured success the way we often measure success? What if he would have looked in the mirror and said, you know what, I'm an absolute failure. I've done nothing for God. I might as well pack up and go home and do nothing else. But see, he had a calling and he understood the scripture. He kept his hand to the plow. He stayed in in India for 41 years and in that time he was able to translate the scripture into over 200 something different dialects and languages in India and after 41 years they had a grand total of 700 new believers I'll give you the scope of that 700 new believers today the population of India is 1.3 billion people so you know that Back in the late 1700s or early 1800s, it wasn't that much, but it was millions and millions and millions. It was way more than our country. Way more. And yet 700 in that large number of people doesn't seem like anything, does it? No. But you know what? After 41 years of ministry, when his ministry ended, he never got to see what Next, He never got to see the true harvest of his labor. This is a man who sacrificed his life, who literally gave everything for the cause of the gospel in a foreign land when he could have stayed in his own country and been perfectly comfortable 
and con- well, he couldn't have been content because God, God got in his heart. But what he never saw was what we have the privilege of seeing in hindsight Adonira Judson, Hudson Taylor, China Inland Mission, Jim Elliott, Amy Carmichael. What he didn't realize God was doing through him was he set the foundation for the language to be, to, uh, uh, to be actually understood in, in, in certain parts of India. He also was the founder and the one who began to get scriptures everywhere in the entire nation. He also was one who started a revolutionary movement of missionaries that extended to the uttermost parts of the earth. What kind of harvest did he see? He only saw 741 years, but from God's perspective, perspective it's millions and millions and millions. So what am I saying to you? I'm saying I'm, I want you to change your thinking on this. Stop thinking that you're just a person who does trucos. If you're not called to preach, you shouldn't be preaching. You should be doing what you're called to do. If you're called to money, you should be doing money. If you're called to be hospitable, you should be hospitable. If you're called to serve, you should serve. If you're called to cook breakfast, you should cook breakfast. And God's people said? If you're called to the homeless, you should. everything that you should do should fit within your calling. But let's be careful that we don't use that as an excuse to not listen and find what God's calling is. Because, you know, we're real good about twisting what God says to fit what we want. Maybe you're not, but I am. Right? Oh, I know God is calling me to this. Yeah, go ahead and try it and see how that works out for you. It ain't going to end well. Ask me. I know. In 1 Corinthians, let me share one more passage with you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with the church on this very issue. It wasn't so much of a personal thing in terms of it, it wasn't necessarily that people were saying to themselves, I'm not so important. It was more that there was this conflict between those who were seemingly important and those who weren't. So, so it, was a, it was a dividing issue of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not worldly. Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? You know, one of the things that I think was going on was they were, they were looking and they were judging the, the quality of preaching from the, different, from the different preachers. Like, oh, I like him. He's real good. Oh, I don't really care for him. He's just, he just, you know, easy, cheap stuff. And Paul was saying, look, I gave you milk because that's all you could take. Because you were a baby. You couldn't eat a steak. You'd think you could, but it would choke you. And so, the very next verse, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God made it grow. You have a pen, marker, underline that, but God made it grow. 
The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So the ownership is God's. The field that we work in every day is God's. All we are is one small part of the equation. And you will forever wrestle with the value of what you do unless you get the fact that it's God who brings the harvest. So, do not underestimate or undervalue what God has called you to do. Find out what He's called you to do and do it. And guess what? If you think you're going to be on stage but you won't even serve coffee, you're wrong. God doesn't put people on stage that won't serve coffee. Do you all understand what I'm saying? We want these high, high jobs, but we're not willing to do the stuff that nobody wants to do. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus will reward you and grant you favor according to your faithfulness to what He's already called you to do. Some of you might be struggling because you don't have enough influence. And if if I can kind of speak for what God would say, I haven't given you more influence because you are not using the influence you already have. Don't complain to God. Just do what you're already supposed to do, right? Look, if that shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, just throw it to the side. Because I'm speaking to me too. That's the way God operates. Don't you remember the parable that says, look, the one that had five and invested it and doubled it, I gave them more. The one who had one and didn't do anything but bury it and sit on it, I took what I even gave him away. That's called stewardship. Stewardship is not just about money. It's about what God has gifted you with. So one, find out what your giftedness is and, and, and do it. Two, don't undervalue or devalue what it is that God has given you to do. I think sometimes extroverts get a lot more credit than introverts. I don't think that. I know that. We even joke about it. Extroverts have more fun. It's not really true. It appears that way. But fun has nothing to do with with introvert or extrovert because people find fun in all different things, right? I know some people who find counting numbers fun. God bless you. If you're an accountant, you are a special gift to this earth. To be able to count numbers like that would absolutely drive me nuts. And I mean, I can do it, but I don't want to do it. Guess what? That's why God gave you to us as a church, so you can count. If you have the ability to talk, you should be a talker. You have the ability to listen, you should listen. I told the first service, I said, you know, my my wife has been given the ability to talk to anyone, anywhere. She could even convince a brick wall that it's a good day outside. She could. I mean, Shannon just has that ability to talk with anybody, anywhere. And and it's like this never-ending flow of conversation. I mean, we laugh about it, but the truth is that is a gift from the Lord. Now it takes wisdom how to use it, but it's a gift from the Lord. I'm glad she has it. You know, you know the, I'll tell you a little secret. Oh, it's on camera. Darn. So when we go to a restaurant, I let her talk so I can eat. Because <laughs> if I'm talking, I can't eat. <laughs> it's perfect, right? 
<laughs> we, we went out to dinner with some folks yesterday, and uh, Shannon was just carrying the conversation. I was just, I was just eating. Mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, yep, uh-huh. It was great. It was perfect. The last thing is this. Do not devalue what somebody else does thinking that you have a better place in the kingdom because you have a higher position, whatever that looks like. And know that I don't do that to you. None, none of our team does that. We're not measuring your faithfulness, so to speak. To be fair, we are gauging because we're trying to see, is there something going on? Is there something, you know, if somebody just stops coming to church for a month, we should notice and try to, you know, is something going on? You know, sickness? Or are you just mad? Or, you know, but at the end of the day, that's between you and God. What has God given you to do? What gift has he given you? Do you recognize how important it is for us to see a harvest that belongs to God and is for God. Put your hand to the plow, folks. Pick up a rock. Go buy some seed. And let's get to work. You know, if you're here today and you never trusted Jesus, I want to invite you to do so. It's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of your works, so that you can't boast Bible tells us this, there's none good, not even one. Our sin condemns us. It separates us. The Bible even says it this way. We are enemies to God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, I, I, I think about that and I, I can't even imagine giving my child to suffer wrath that belongs to someone else. And yet God gave His only begotten Son that whoever, rich, poor, white, black, Asian, Latino, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's the beginning of the gospel. If you haven't done it already, will you trust in Jesus even now? Close your eyes and bow your head with me if you will. If you're following on Facebook and you're watching this, I want to invite you to the same thing. God really does love you. He really does love you. Father, I pray that in this moment, you would help us to recognize the truths of your word. God, I pray that we would leave today encouraged and motivated with a renewed sense of zeal to put our hand to the plow and do what you've called each of us to do. It doesn't look the same for everybody. Father, may we simply choose to be faithful. That is our call. In Jesus' name. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at FBC Gulf.